When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You almost hear the phrase, we're all in this together too much. And, and it's a truthful thing. We were all in this together three months ago. We live in an interdependent world in which our neighbor matters. We live in an interdependent world in which the, the world around us matters, and we shape that world, and we're shaped by this world. We're all in this together is absolutely true. And I'm hoping we remember this after we're done with all of this. And whatever I was searching for, it was always you. Now that I have found you, let me tell you what I'll do. I have five things to say, five coins to give away. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson, and uh, we are back. So there was a little bit of a break there. Uh, if you guys didn't notice between the two divorce episodes, that was not intentional. Um, unfortunately, despite the fact that I have been working from home uh, for almost two months now and sheltering in place, I have very minimal contact with only my ex-wife and my daughter and um, uh, having d- groceries delivered, all that good stuff, and, and just... You know, staying staying in place, trying to help flatten the curve. I somehow managed to pick up the coronavirus anyway. So, uh, this is the first week I've been back at my full time job, back at work. I'm feeling way way better, uh, but definitely the mental aspect of it is is pretty terrifying. You know, I live alone and I have my daughter fifty percent of the time, and so there's a lot of of time spent by myself um, because of the situation we find ourselves in and now. So the mental game, the mental aspect, especially after I had to quarantine and couldn't see my daughter for um, nearly two and a half weeks, you know, while I um, fought off this illness and uh, essentially, you know, got cleared by the Department of Health um, was uh, pretty, pretty tough, uh, mentally speaking, probably even more so than the symptoms, although those are Certainly no fun as well. Um, so just, uh, I, I can't express enough. Stay safe out there. Um, take all the proper precautions. Um, like I said, I, I took every precaution I could and still somehow managed to get it, which just goes to show you just how contagious this virus is and how aggressive it, it, it is. So <clears throat> so anyway, yeah, um, definitely still still recovering in, in some aspects, but I feel um, infinitely better. And I'm, I'm so glad to be up and around and, and, uh, at least seeing my daughter again. So, um, so, you know, silver lining here. So, you know, got a lot of reading done. Um, anyway, so we are back and, um, ironically this episode, I was supposed to record two or three weeks ago and it's on the topic, uh, of the pandemic and uh, faith in the time of a pandemic. And that's literally the name of this week's guest book. Um, it's a wonderful book, very, very short. Um, I think it's only like $5.99 on Amazon. Um, I, I'm going to send it out this month for the uh, book club uh, folks uh, who are part of the book club uh, through Patreon, through our Patreon. Um, I I just think it's a super helpful book. There's a lot of really great spiritual practices in there. Um, A lot of really good, helpful things um, that, that 
uh, psychiatrists and psychologists actually recommend as well. Things like, you know, maintaining a routine as much as you can, uh, even from home, uh, that, that just help you on a psychological level, um, meditation, uh, things of that nature to try to keep, uh, anxiety at bay, which is a very, very easy thing to do. I know if, if a lot of you out there are like me, it's, it's hard to not see, uh, you know, things in the media and, and things that just make you feel even worse. You know, it's, it's very easy to, to get sucked into that whole, uh, end times kind of thinking, you know, and e- even if you don't literally believe that just the idea that there's just so, so many horrific things going on. Um, just the, the death count keeps climbing and the amount of cases keeps climbing and, and it doesn't seem as if, um, there's a good solid plan in place or at least a coherent one, um, as, as every state is doing something slightly different. Um, and, and so it, uh, it can be, pretty, pretty scary. And then you add in murder horn. It's like, as if we needed something more this year, you know? Um, yeah. Murder hornets. It's a real thing. If you don't know about it, Google it and, and, or, or maybe don't. Um, but anyway, so it's been an odd year so far, 2020, but, um, this book is very, very helpful because I think it helps, uh, you know, with the anxiety and it helps to, um, just give you some hope and, and some practices to help you, uh, essentially, you know, find a little hope and, and find a little silver lining in, um, this kind of new normal that we find ourselves in. Um, so I hope you guys love it. It, you know, I, like I said, I just thoroughly enjoyed speaking with him. Um, the, the guest who I haven't named yet is the Reverend Dr. Bruce Epperly. Uh, fantastic. He's a very prolific writer. He's got a lot of work out there. Um, his primary, uh, field is process theology. So at some point we'll have to, uh, to, to dig into some of that, but, um, he just, he, he's one of those types that I really enjoy because he pulls from a lot of different areas. So you'll find that in, um, a lot of his work, he'll, he'll pull in things from like Buddhist traditions. Uh, he pulls in, he quotes rabbis. He's, he's pulling from all over the place. And, and, um, I, and I, I think that makes it really interesting and, and, um, in a really enjoyable read. So, so definitely go get in the book. Um, can't recommend it enough. He's got another one. He talks about in the episode, a follow-up coming out, I think in June, I believe he said, uh, that's specifically based on the idea of hope in the time of a pandemic and, and how do we stay hopeful? How do we stay positive? Um, so, uh, fantastic stuff. Otherwise, uh, the music on this week's episode, I'm very excited about, uh, he's been on before, and his name will look oddly familiar to you, but it's our very own Nicholas Rowe, who is the fine producer of this podcast, who um, works very hard to take the crappy audio that I send him and make it sound reasonable. You know, so so Nick's got a new EP out, or will be out, I believe, at the time of this podcast, will be out the following week. But I'll have the links in the show notes. So if you like his music, a lot of people, the last time he had new music out, we used it on the podcast, um, really enjoyed it. Um, and, and went out and, uh, and, and took a listen. So, uh, so Nicholas Rowe, uh, new stuff, go check it out, go support him. Um, additionally, thank you guys so much for continuing to support. Um, and, and all the well wishes that you guys sent me, it meant, uh, meant a great deal. So, um, little things like that, you know, are, are the things that, that get you through something like this. So, so I really appreciate it. Um, what else? Oh, 
website. So if you go to www.thedeconstructionists, with an S on the end, plural, dot com, uh, you can pretty much find everything. So we put all of our episodes on there so you can stream it directly from the, the website. So you can go through our whole back catalog, uh, listen to everybody that we've ever interviewed. Um, what else? Social media is on there. So you can link to uh, my social media, Adam's social media, the podcast social media. Um, you can read our blog. You can uh, find our Patreon link through there. Uh, what else? Our web store. So if you want a t-shirt or a, a sweet pint glass or a coffee mug, um, there's all sorts of good stuff on there as well. So thank you guys so much for your support. Thank you guys for continuing to stick with us uh, through this time. And uh, hopefully... Uh, while you're stuck at home, that these episodes are are useful and a comfort to you. And we have a ton more episodes that have already been recorded that I have um, in the can, essentially, that I cannot wait to release. Uh, some some fun topics, some interesting topics, hopefully th- some things that will take your mind off of uh, the stressful times that we, we are in. So uh, without further ado, uh, let's get to it and uh, let's talk about the pandemic. Uh, without further ado... Doctor Reverend Doctor Bruce Epperly. I can walk away and laugh about it, treat it like a joke. Cause if it's only just the two of us, that's really all I need. Sometimes I can't remember why I learned to count to three. Well, welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I am super excited to have our guest on today. Uh, Bruce Epperly, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk with us. Well, it's a joy to be here today and to try to inject a little hope and reason, a little faith in a time of pandemic. Absolutely. And that that really is the heart of this most recent book that you wrote that I think is is absolutely wonderful. It's called Faith in a Time of Pandemic, and it, it could not be more timely. Uh, these are truly unprecedented times that I, I think it's safe to say no one has quite experienced anything like this before. Uh, and in doing this podcast for the past four years, uh, when Adam and I started it, one thing that we did notice is that people who, who tend to enter into periods of doubt or questioning or what we might call lament or even a deconstruction or a spiritual journey, whatever you want to call it, uh, it tends to be because of moments of crisis uh, or tragedy, much like, like this. And so uh, one of the things you talk about at the very beginning of the book is you talk, you address this topic straight out of the gate, where you talk about specifically Americans and Europeans, we, we seem to have this illusion of safety that the virus or the spread of the virus, the effect of the virus is really shattered. And, and it's in the sense that it's not some sort of abstract idea. This is something that's taking place on U.S. soil, on European soil. So talk about that a little bit. Well, yeah, I think that in, in the northern hemisphere and perhaps Australia and New Zealand as well, we have a sense of tremendous privilege, We have a sense of control. We have a sense that we can solve every problem. And we live good lives, especially those of us who have jobs, who have the ability to uh, shelter in place, who have bank accounts and uh, savings accounts and uh, good, uh, good retirement plans. We have the illusion that we're in charge of our lives. And I think very much, especially in the United States, there's a sense that nothing can beat us. There's a sense that we are the 
the Romans of our time, that the American empire is from sea to shining sea across the globe and nothing can stop us. And yet just a little virus has brought us to our knees. Just a little virus has, has exposed the, the weaknesses of our economy, the weaknesses of our justice system, the challenges of our healthcare system. And so people like myself, uh, you know, who pick up our groceries or have them delivered to our houses have to jockey for toilet paper. Who could imagine such a thing? And, and who have to look around and see if we could get san- hand sanitizer. And of course, in churches, you know, the pandemic came at, uh, you know, the worst time in the Christian year, you might say, right before Easter. So those of us who were just imagining a future that would go along exactly as we planned it, everything went upside down. And I, I wrote the book as a theologian. Uh, I'm a, a theological writer. I'm involved in spiritual movements. I'm also the pastor of the ch- of a church, not to mention as a father and grandfather. And so I, I'm dealing, a husband, I, I wrote that on all these levels, uh, seeing how this pandemic has thrown everything upside down for us in all so many ways. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's absolutely just disrupted every every aspect of life. Um, so one of the things that I, I love about your book, though, is you talk about ways that, despite the fact that this this virus has completely disrupted um, any sense of normalcy uh, that we're used to that we appreciate here, uh, you, you've talked about a lot of different practices to help stay. Uh, for lack of a better word, sane or calm while sheltering in place and, and you know, having very minimal human contact. I know I'm, I myself live alone. I have my daughter 50% of the time. And so for the most part, most of my human interaction has been via things like Skype and, and Zoom, you know. So, uh, so meditation has actually been a big help for me, a, a big calming factor for me, a practice that, that has been very healthy for me. And you talk about something similar in the book, you talk about this Celtic, Celtic practice called the, if I'm pronouncing this correctly, the came or encircling. Yes, yes. I, I, I think spiritual practices are essential in this time. And of course, there's a variety of practices appropriate to a person's personality type or religious background or faith perspective or a neogram type or whatever you want to say. But the Celtic came is one that really strikes me. It's basically an encircling. Uh, Some people suggest that it may even have been related to the prayer of St. Patrick. You know, Christ above me, Christ below me, Christ to my right, Christ to my left. And you draw a circle around yourself. You draw a circle around yourself to assume that the the most important things in your life are in God's hands. Uh, now, these sort of practices, like the Celtic came, gain credibility because these practices came from a hard scrabble people, a people that often face conflict, a people whose life was not often always easy, and yet they felt the certainty of God's presence that God was with them that God would not necessarily um, protect them from the slings and arrows of faith. They didn't have the sort of Christian exceptionalism that you see among pastors who want to fling open the doors of their church regardless of the consequences. 
but they had a sense that the deeper issues of their lives were in God's hands. Or as the Apostle Paul would say, whether we live or die, we're in God's care. And that's what I practice pretty well daily. There's two, I'm a, all of us in many ways, John, are monastics uh, these days. Uh, in my little world uh, is, is the two households, my sons and my own, uh, uh, half a dozen people going down to the beach every morning at sunrise and then coming back the mile and a half from the, the beach to my home uh, and walking the dog in the neighborhood. Our worlds are small. We're monastic almost. And, uh, and so these practices become themselves to that. The other practice that's really been speaking to me lately is, a, is from one of the Psalms. It's just simply that salutation you hear often in church. This is the day that God has made. Let me rejoice and be glad in it. Uh, I use this as a way not to deny the realities of life. Frankly, denial is death. And we've seen how denial has put our nation at risk. The denial of religious leaders, denial of political leaders, the denial of everyday people who thought that this couldn't touch them. Denial puts us to risk, but this this is the day that God has made, and I will rejoice and be glad in it, reminds me that this is a new day. It's the only day I have, that in this day I have possibilities. I'm not a victim of fate, but I have some agency. There's something I can do. I'm reminded of Viktor Frankl speaking from the concentration camp in Germany who said they can take everything away from a person except their ability to have a, have a particular attitude toward the events of their lives. And, and this psalm gives me a sense that I can be a companion of God in healing the world, that I'm not passive, that I even have some agency in responding to the crises of our time, and that I'm not alone. Oh, that's great. <clears throat> I'm going to skip ahead in my questions here because I, th- I think it, it pertains to what you just talked about. You, you talk about the fact that there really are two types of, of fear. There's, there's fear that, that helps in the sense that it protects you and it keeps you out of harm's way and danger. And then there's, I, I guess, for lack of a better word, unhealthy fear. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Well, yeah, I think there's a reasonable fear that we ought to have. Um, I'm going to frame it in the macro as well as the micro. Uh, It's interesting. Healthy fear tells us that we shouldn't necessarily go face-to-face with the person we're talking with, that we shouldn't necessarily put ourselves at risk, that certain of us have risk factors and the the COVID-19 could be disastrous for us. So healthy fear says, let me protect myself. Healthy fear, in a way, compels me to put my mask on as a way of saying that I'm not going to put anybody else at risk, that I realize that if I'm a carrier and don't know it, I could be problematic to someone else, so there's the healthy fear. Uh, I think there's also the unhealthy fear, which takes two or three different forms. Uh, One form is just assuming that the virus is the only reality, that that we have to be afraid of our shadows, that we can have to burrow into our homes and make absolutely no physical contact whatsoever. Uh, there's another type of unhealthy fear, and I see it among these people who are on the um, the steps of cap state capitals. Um, 
they're afraid in an interesting way um, of losing everything and in the process are putting themselves at risk. Uh, they're afraid that any in- intrusion on freedom is a violation of their rights. Uh, uh, and there's a fear there as well. There's a fear of the other. There's a fear of people different than them. Um, I think a healthy fear uh, is, is grounded in the, the saying that I've heard throughout my life that uh, courage is fear that has said its prayers. Uh, and I've been reading each morning we have morning prayer at our church on Zoom, and just a handful of people show up for it. It's a faithful two or three. And throughout this time, our anchor passage has been Psalm 23 as being one we read each day. Uh, and, you know, that Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, talks about the dark valley. It talks about enemies around you. And yet it's a psalm of courage because it says that because God is with me, I'm dwelling in God's house, I don't have to be afraid of being afraid. Uh, You know, as a person of of my late 60s with a couple risk factors, a little bit of fear is a good thing. A little bit of fear says, I'm going to wash my hands. A little bit of fear says, I'm going to wear a mask. A little bit of fear says, I'm not going to just pick up anything I see on the street. But I'm also not going to let go of the need to be faithful to God, faithful to others, and to do what I can to be God's companion in healing the world. I'm going to wake up in the morning believing this is a new day and I can do something beautiful for God. Yeah. Ta- oh gosh. Yeah. Talk about, cause, cause the, the book kind of goes from, from talking about, um, as you said, uh, and I love that quote, by the way, don't be afraid of being afraid. Um, you relate it to this, you do this great job of relating it to the story of Jesus and the disciples in the boat in the gospel of Mark. And you talk about, uh, three miracles in the story that we can kind of lean on. I would love for you to expand on that. Well, yes, and it, and it's a wonderful story, and I, and I really, you know, some people who know much more about mythology and dream interpretation than I do would suggest that the boat is one of those symbols of the soul or the human person. And so the disciples, very much like us, are, are sailing across the Sea of Galilee. Uh, they've had a successful journey they're just enjoying the day, and all of a sudden there comes a storm out of nowhere. And and they're utterly uh, overwhelmed by it. Uh, we're sinking. We're sinking. We've lo- we're losing everything. Help, help. And then one of them realizes that Jesus is in the boat with them. One of them realizes Jesus is in the boat with them, and all of a sudden, probably a light goes on. The, the storm, I believe, is still going on. And the waves are battering against the boat, and yet they recognize Jesus is with them and beginning to feel that they're going to be all right, that they're safe, that nothing is going to harm them ultimately. And then they cry out to Jesus, they reach out to Jesus, and reaching out to God in a time of crisis itself is a miraculous act, because oftentimes in a time of crisis, we just simply circle the wagons and and focus only on what we're afraid of. And then Jesus says, peace be still, 
And the peace that he gives them is, first of all, the inner peace. It's the inner peace of realizing that nothing can separate them from the love of God, that uh, in the midst of the storm, God is with us, that they, that they will not sink. And then the storm subsides. Now, this is our world right now, and, and we're definitely afraid. We're definitely in the midst of the storm. We don't know if we're going to survive, but we turn to Jesus. And I hear I'm not talking about some form of individual self-interested salvation. Uh, we turn to Jesus, and we realize we're not alone. Uh, I, I'm one of these preachers who... who uh, writer and preacher both who who works way in advance i realize life is always going to throw me a curve so i uh murphy's law is always somewhere at work in the world and so i always work in advance and uh, this morning this afternoon uh uh, after the, while the boys were out playing, my grandchildren were out playing in the backyard. I looked at the, the passage from, for Trinity Sunday, June 7th. And the last words of Matthew's gospel, lo, I am with you always. Lo, I am with you always, even until the end. And I think that gives you a sense of how the disciples feel. I mean, there also were a little like a, com a corresponding story, of course, John, is, is Peter walking on the water. And, and, and when he keeps his eyes on Jesus, he's able to, to do the impossible. When he turns from Jesus, he sinks into the ocean. And so there is a sense of holding on to God and doing as... Uh, you know, mainly, mainly remembering that your source of strength is bigger than you. The thing that I really identified with, too, I think, in this section of the book is this idea of uh, the calm in the midst of the storm, so to speak. And for me, I've found that uh, oftentimes in, in, these, in this situation, it's been uh, my relationships have actually benefited from the fact that uh, there are less distractions. You know, I can't go out and do the things I normally am able to do. And so, you know, when I'm with my daughter, we can't, we can't really... We can't go to the park. We can't go do certain things. So uh, the attention that she gets from me is probably a lot better. And, you know, and, and the times that we spent together have just been a lot. The, the quality time has just been a lot better. And uh, it's just been really the silver lining for me, um, you know. And I think that's a powerful witness because, you know, the reality is, is that for some of us, we've come to realize What's most important in life? Uh, we've come to realize that um, maybe uh, three hours on Facebook is not as important as some other things in our lives. We've come to realize that the people around us that we can talk to on the phone or FaceTime or Zoom uh, uh, are important to us and, and that we don't get caught up. Uh, it's, it's, you know, the crisis has a way of focusing on what's important. It has a way of saying, this is good. This is what really matters. I think it's, uh, Rabbi Kushner in one of his books, 
says that no one on their deathbed uh, regrets missing a meeting. Oh. And that if you'd, if you'd ask people, most of us would say, what's most important in your life? Well, it's health and family. It's my spiritual life. It's my care for justice. And yet a lot of our lifestyles uh, betray that. A lot of our lifestyles say, see you later, Jack. One of my grandsons is saying saying goodbye, and of course my grandson <laughs> is the heart of my life. That's... And being with them 40 hours a week uh, <laughs> during the weekdays, homeschooling and doing all the things we're doing since the schools are closed, I think that this is an awful long day because I still have a day job and I'm still a, a professional writer. But these boys, maybe years from now, will think of these times at the times where we really gelled as a family. And their mom and dad, who are very active professionals, are very competent people, are both working at home, and, and, and thankfully spending more time than usual with them as well. Uh, you know, I think the, the good news of this is that people who have values or who learn they have values are going to grow together. Uh, Lord knows we have to be patient with each other because, of course, the pandemic has has caused a great deal of stress for almost everyone. And uh, we haven't anticipated that we would ever be in a situation like this. And we didn't anticipate and can't anticipate where it's going. So there's a lot of stress. But if we do set her back down, if we do remember what's important, uh, we'll we'll be more deeply connected with God and others as a result of this. Uh, couldn't, could not agree more. Um, it, it, it has been, I think between, between having the shelter in place and, and just not having the social freedoms that we're used to. And, and for me personally, I know you and I were supposed to sit down and chat, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago and, uh, it got disrupted because I got COVID. I got the coronavirus. Yeah. And uh, yes. have spent some weeks uh, recovering, and uh, you know, to be completely honest, the mental aspect of the virus is even uh, possibly potentially worse than the virus itself. I, you know, not knowing if it's going to get worse, not knowing if you're going to make it through it, and and thinking of your, uh, you know, in, in my case, my daughter and my family and stuff like that. It just uh, it really focuses you in on, as you said, the things that are most important in your life. Well, yeah, I know. I think we can live by the illusion that that we we are immortal until we discover otherwise. Yes. And, and one of the gifts of mortality, and it goes back to that psalm, this is the day God has made. This is the only time we have is right now. Uh, we can't guarantee, uh, and part of this is the gift of, of being more gone than, with more days behind me than ahead of me, uh, one of the gifts of that is don't mess around. Uh, you know, I could use a stronger word to describe don't blank around, yeah. but don't mess around here. Uh, this life is too precious. So when I see people still getting involved in bloviating and bullying and, uh, and picking fights at the national level as well as the interpersonal level, I'm thinking to myself, this is the time of your life. Do something important with it. Uh, don't waste your time with grudges or uh, try to figure out what's right in yourself and what's right in the world and, and then move forward. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There, there are loved ones uh, close to me who have, who have definitely 
benefited from this time in, in the sense that they've used it to self-reflect and, and make, you know, life changes for the better and, and things of that nature. And then creative uh, friends of mine who have used this time to just create and write and, you know, and create art and, and things of that nature. So I think it's in, in a lot of ways focusing on the positives of it. Um, I think a lot of good has come from this as well. Yeah. And I've been thinking a bit about, uh, life beyond the, the pandemic. And uh, I'm not sure when things will open up in America. I mean, it, everything is kind of iffy, and I believe some people probably are jumping the gun. Uh, and and uh, in many ways, they're, they're just overly impatient with the process, and for good reason. I mean, people want to get back to their jobs. They want to go to restaurants and movies and stop at the, the coffee house that they're familiar with. I do, too. Uh, they want to have their churches open up, and I do too. But I hope that we've learned something from this and realizing that human human life is such that we often forget our our greatest lessons. But there are a couple of these these mottos that that, that to me have come a come across as being really important this time. Uh, you almost hear the phrase, "We're all in this together too much." Yeah. these days and uh, and it's almost everybody's saying it except maybe the the leader the president of the United States but everybody else is saying it uh and and it's a truthful thing we were all in this together 3 months ago we live in an interdependent world in which our neighbor matters we live in an interdependent world in which the the world around us matters and we shape that world and we're shaped by this world we're all in this together is absolutely true. And I'm hoping we remember this after we're done with all of this. I hope we, that we, this little holiday we've given the planet, uh, the, the skies are bluer, the, uh, the waters are cleaner, the air is cleaner, uh, because we're not going out as much. I hope that we realize that we can making an impact on the environment that we are shaping it and we need to get ready for the next pandemic, which is really the climate change one. And the only way to deal with that is not with a vaccine, but with human behavior. Uh, we're all in this together for me also means we have to realize that uh, the humblest among us matter. The humblest among us matter. And, and uh, you know, we think of the normal heroes and uh, uh, that we often point out the uh, – the physicians and the nurses and the first responders, the National Guard folk. But the other heroes are the people who deliver our groceries at $12 an hour. Yes. The, the non-unionized store clerk, the person who picks our vegetables and fruits and packs them, many of them being undocumented workers. I hope that we realize that these people matter too. And I hope all those thank you signs that we see out there on our streets and those words of gratitude be last beyond this time because gratitude, as they say, talk is cheap. We need to be actually gratitude, grateful to the workers that are going out every day without any decent health insurance, the workers that are going out each day without any clear sense they're going to be in the country six months from now, the, the workers that are put at risk in the, in the meatpacking plants right now uh, because they've been determined to be vital, gratitude 
has to take shape as does interdependence. So I hope that these these are two of the most important spiritual values for me, John. One is the sense of interdependence. We all matter to each other. We're all part of this wonderful earth body or what Paul would call the body of Christ. We're all part of that body. And we need to remember that we all matter to one another. We need to get beyond the politics of binary in and out, saved and unsaved, uh, friend and enemy. Uh, we need to get beyond grudges. We need to to find a common good to focus on. Uh, we need also to live by the politics of gratitude, which means that everyone can make a difference, and we need to thank people in ways that are tangible as well as verbal. It, you really hit on the ne- the next question I had, which is there's a part in the book where you talk about how the effects, the positive effects that, that fear can have, and one of those being the ability to help expand our empathy for others. And I, I really do see that happening. I see uh, folks really banding around each other, um, not unlike what I recall from, from when 9-11 happened in, in New York. I remember the yeah. slogan, everyone's a New Yorker, you know, and, and it was the most yeah. uh, remarkable uh, time in the aftermath, just people really responding out, out, of, out of the goodness of their hearts to to react to this traumatic event, and I see that happening now. And and, and you're right. How do we keep that? How do we keep that momentum going after the threat is no longer present? Because and then that's really is the threat. The reality of our common humanity is that we all are living as mortals in this moment in time on this little planet. And we do need a certain sense of of, uh, not threat in the sense of just looking over our shoulder and being afraid, but the the reality is that the the life is precious, and other people's lives are precious. That's the other aspect of it. It's not just about me. It's about the other person. It's about the person, uh, again, uh, there there are two, two tendencies going on right now. One is blame somebody for the problem, which is the binary approach. Lord knows there's enough blame to go around both on our soil and on other nations' soil. But part of this blame somebody, divide somebody, uh, see somebody else at fault, scapegoat somebody, that's the way of death. That's the way of death. Hopefully, we'll realize that the United States of America, which is the country I love, as a as American, I love my country. We'll realize that we depend on other countries. We'll realize that that if a virus from another nation can harm us, and I don't necessarily want to blame China, to be honest, on this point. Although there may be culpability, that's not the point. If a virus can can hurt us, it means we're connected. And if the well-being of other nations is connected to our well-being, then we better well change our ways. We better well look at things globally as well as uh, in terms of nation first. So I'm hoping there's an an upswell of planetary thinking, an upswell of community thinking, an upswell of realizing that my neighbor needs me and I need my neighbor. Ah, amen. (laughs) Um, I, there's a story that you tell in the book that I absolutely love. Uh, you recount this this story from the theologian Howard Thurman, uh, this example that that sometimes the right move is to be still for a moment instead of letting fear dictate our next move. Uh, talk about that a little bit. That's a super powerful well, yes. story. 
Well, yes, and and you know it's one of these stories that uh, that I believe Thurman says it. I keep quoting it from this, and Howard Thurman was the the, the great African American uh, theologian, spiritual guide, uh, uh, active in the civil rights movement. Uh, 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 Martin Luther King uh, uh, had his book, probably the first African American liberation theology, uh, Jesus and the Disinherited, wrote written in the forties in his satchel during the civil rights campaign, uh, movement of the 50s and 60s, Thurman uh, tells the story of being a young boy growing up in Daytona Beach, Florida, and uh, goes out on a warm summer day picking berries. And he's, he's, you know, he's a young boy. He's in sweet abandon. He's doing what you do on a summer day when there's no school. He tears out into the woods, putting as many berries in his mouth as he does in his pail. And he's further and further in the woods. And suddenly he hears a crash of thunder and sees a flash of lightning. And, and he looks around and he discovers he has absolutely no sense of where he is. He has absolutely no sense of where he is, and and the first impulse he has is just to start running somewhere, even though he has no place to run and no clear direction. Let's just start running. And then he remembers something that his wise grandmother had told him. When you don't know where you're going, stop, pause, look around. And so he begins to look around a little bit like the Celtic came in a certain way. He, he begins to rotate his attention in a circle. And it's dark because of the great storm, but yet periodically there's a lightning flash that, that, that uh, illuminates things. And, uh, and he finally, as he looks around, sees something familiar. And he walks toward it. And there's another flash, and he walks toward some more familiar. He walks toward some more familiar. He walks toward some more till he finds his way on the familiar path that leads him home. And and I think for that, there's two things that really strike me about that. One is when you're tempted to panic, slow down and take some breaths. One of my personal teachers, I did get to know Howard Thurman a little bit, and uh, I actually have a, a book that someday will come out from uh, the Friends United Press, uh, Prophetic Healing. It's about the contemplative activism of Howard Thurman. Uh, but another one of my mentors, Alan Armstrong Hunter, taught a prayer, I breathe the spirit deeply in and blow it thankfully out again. And of course, many Christians have also found uh, solace in in the pausing, the mindfulness teachings of the Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, breathing in, I feel calm. Breathing out, I smile. There's something to be said for pausing and not rushing around and not trying to solve the problem immediately till you know what the problem is and you know some first step to solving it. The second aspect of this is that the lightning, the storm itself, has the seeds of the future in it. He finds his way home, Thurman finds his way home, through the machinations of the storm itself. Without the lightning, he wouldn't have found his way home. So the storm itself may have some of the answers we need. So it's, it's I'm hopeful that 
within and beyond this pandemic that we will discover we have some answers within it. We'll discover that it has had a wisdom. It wasn't a wisdom that was foreordained by God. It wasn't divine punishment for homosexuality. It wasn't divine punishment for other sorts of issues. It's not a sign of the second coming. But that within this storm, there's a wisdom that we can find that will help us for the future beyond it. Oh, that's great. I mean, I, 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 for the most part, agree that this isn't the end times. I think I was with you until I found out a uh, murder hornets, and then I, I'm not sure anymore. So, <laughs> like, like, what yeah. more do we need this year, really? I mean, <laughs> well, yes, I know, I know. <laughs> you know, the sign, but you know, the signs of the times are always there, John. And uh, right, right. I remember my father, my father. Uh, uh, and I, my dad was a Baptist preacher and uh, preached at churches that were more conservative than, than I am today. Uh, but I remember my dad was a very thoughtful man, and we, my, he and I used to take walks. And uh, uh, when I was home from college, and uh, we'd take walks at night and walk 10 or 15 or 20 minutes in the evening and just talk about things. And, you know, my dad had an insight that I've come to believe is quite true. Uh, when in speaking about the second coming, he said, well, I'm not sure it's a dateable event. But I think God comes to us all the time, and in each moment is a moment of decision. Each moment is a moment in which we're we're called to respond to Christ coming to us, and and as, as Mother Teresa would say, in that in that moment of decision, and you know we're called to do something beautiful for God or say yes to the call that God has for us. Yeah, that your your dad sounds like a very wise man. <laughs> he was a wonderful man. I mean, in many ways, uh, I've took a different path from him. But as I've gotten older, I've come to appreciate the uh, the power of the evangelical faith when it's rooted in a personal relationship with God that's not a binary one. Uh, when it's rooted in a personal relationship with God, with Jesus, that that enlivens you, that makes the world wider rather than smaller. And, uh, you know, I think that one of the challenges for my, for people who call themselves progressive is to recognize that there's much wisdom in the Pentecostal movements. There's much wisdom in the authentic evangelical Christianity. And there's much wisdom in those who are seekers and haven't, haven't found a home. And, and I think that, uh, for me, the evangelical spirit is the sense that God does come to us personally in the context of the world in which we live and, and, and asks us questions about what kind of person we're going to be and what, we'll, what difference we'll make in the world today and in the long run. Naked trees and Oh man, yeah. I want to. I want to take a step back for a moment, though, because there's a section at the beginning of the book that I, I would. I would be remiss if we if we didn't mention because it fits so well with what we do with this podcast, and it's literally. And this is how you got me with your book. Um, it was chapter one, paragraph one, where you recount. Uh, 
uh, a story about Madeline, and I'm probably going to mess up the pronunciation of her last name. Madeline Yes, yes. Uh, and, and, and Paul Tillich as well, who's another one of our favorites, uh, where you recount uh, the, the role of faith, uh, excuse me, the role of doubt uh, within faith and how it's not a negative thing at all. It's, it's a natural, essential part of faith. And then you also tie that into fear, uh, also being an essential uh having an essential role as well. Talk about that. I think that's a super profound uh, moment in the book. Well, yes. And uh, if I forget fear, remind me about it. Sometimes it's a, sometimes a speaker gets so caught up in the one point that they forget the second. <laughs> so uh, I'm counting, I'm counting on you, John. Uh, <laughs> but I think that for me growing, for me coming from a, a Baptist background and I honor that I reclaimed it later in life. I mean, I, I reclaimed it as part of my my heritage, and I wouldn't be here if I hadn't been there. Uh, you know, so I'm sort of a gentle deconstructionist, I suppose you would say. I I believe that you use the materials of the past to to build new homes to live in, theologically and spiritually. But as a as a college student, I pretty well, and even in high school, had rejected the. Uh, the faith that I'd uh, grown up in, it was too narrow. It wasn't necessarily my dad's faith. It was the faith of the church that, that, uh, that he represented. Uh, it was too narrow. It was too binary. It, it was too clear about things. And I really didn't know if I could call myself a Christian anymore. And, and I, I came upon Paul Tillich's dynamics of faith in college. And I was finding my way back to the church. Uh, I had, uh, been a seeker. I grew up during in the Bay Area during the summer of love and all that. So I was I found, sought my way through all those Woodstock type of things in the Magical Mystery Tour. <laughs> and uh, one one Saturday, uh, I learned transcendental meditation at the at an, uh, an ashram in Berkeley, California. And uh, I came back and uh, you know decided I need to start going back to church again. And and I, I found a, a church that was another Baptist church, but it was very progressive Baptist type of church. And 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 and, and I found at the same time, maybe it was from the pastor there. I mean, having a good pastor can change your life. Uh, who who uh, found Paul Tillich's dynamics of faith, and and when I read Tillich, and he said, doubt is part of faith. You can don't need to doubt that you have faith. But you need to, but the doubt itself, in the terms of the objects of your faith, that really told me I could still be a Christian. That I didn't need to believe in the, in some of the things that I I'd grown up in to be a Christian. Uh, that I didn't need to be absolutely clear about who's saved and who isn't saved. I didn't need to be absolutely clear about the the Genesis stories or or those sort of things or or the nature of salvation uh, or or what what really happened on Easter Sunday. Uh, I happen to believe in the resurrection, but uh, probably not the way I learned it, but the way I've come to learn it. But I didn't have to believe that to be faithful to God, and, and that made. A big difference to me, and of course now, after forty some years now in this pathway of being a religion major, uh, a, a seminary student, a graduate student, uh, a, a professor, and an administrator, uh, uh, a pastor, writer for forty some years, I still recognize uh, that the universe is much larger than I can imagine, and that in a in a universe of a billion galaxies. 
we can have faith in God, but we don't need to worry about having all the answers. And we don't need to worry about claiming that there, that ours is the only path. Uh, the the good Lord may very well have walked paths on other planets uh, and, and looking a little bit more like a Star Wars creature than uh, <laughs> than a human being. Uh, and and we have to trust that. And so Madeline Engels has asked this question. I think she was actually at. Uh, um, at Wheaton College, uh, a good bastion of, 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 of fundamental Christianity. And she'd given a talk there because they respected her there at Wheaton. And, and so a young woman said, do you believe in God without any doubts? And she said, I believe in God with all my doubts. Uh, and I found that especially liberating. And uh, because as a pastor, I've been a pastor for 40 years and uh, and I've spent my life for 20 years of those were as a, a university chaplain and, and professor at Georgetown University. And the other 20 years I've spent being a congregational pastor and also a professor at, at, a, at, at seminaries. Uh, people will come into my study and say, I don't know if I'm a Christian anymore. Uh, I don't know if I'm a Christian anymore. And some will come in with the saying, I just can't believe what I was raised in with anymore. And, and, and uh, or somebody will say in this next hour, somebody will come in and will say, this, this Christian faith is far too masculine oriented. I can't believe in the father God anymore. You know, they're coming from two opposite directions. And, and uh, I'll ask them the question, well, you know, is, is God still important to you? Is Jesus still important to you? And, and, uh, and, uh, they say, yeah, God is important to me. And I said, well, I, I, I think you can leave this, the small details to God. Uh, you know, don't let your faith get in, don't let your doubt get in the way of the faith you have. And the same applies to fear. Uh, you know, one of the things I've discovered or rediscovered, I knew it all along, but sometimes it's a little bit like that verse in the Bible you've read all your life and all of a sudden you read it and saw it with new light, new eyes. Um, I, I knew intellectually uh, that virtually every book in the Bible was written in a time of crisis. There really isn't a lot of smooth sailing in the Bible. Uh, and, uh, you know, whether you're talking about Job or Jonah, yeah. Whether you're talking about the folks in Acts of the Apostles getting arrested, you know, every third week they're in jail. Uh, whether you're talking about Ruth, the uh, the alien who uh, who's going to starve unless she finds a good husband. Uh, whether you talk about Esther, whose uh, uh, people are going to be the victims of genocide, and not to mention the prophetic books when the country's history is in the balance, or, or Daniel, where the Belshazzar is uh, empire is tottering. Uh, you know, these books were written in difficult times and surely the people were afraid. Uh, surely the people felt natural fear for their own well-being and uh, didn't want their lives snuffed out early. They, like myself, you know, have a reason to wake up in the morning. I have a reason to wake up every morning because I'm pastoring a church online and they, they're counting on me. I have a reason to wake up every morning because I've got grandchildren who need me. Uh, I have a mission as a writer, as a teacher. And sometimes I'm afraid of losing that. And then I have to just simply, you know, trust that, that 
that the you know if I go down, God will still be existing. If guy guy go down, I'm still in God's hands. Uh, if I don't make it through this or any other trial, uh, I have to trust that God has the final word for the people I love, for my church, and for the planet. And it's not a preordained word. It's more the sense that God keeps working in everything for good, and and that I have to trust that, uh, even with my all the fears that I have for my own well-being at times, I have to trust that, because God embraces our fears, our doubts. The worst thing we can do in our life of faith is to deny our humanity. Uh, the worst thing we can do is to deny the threat. Uh, on the macro level, part of the mess we're in in a country is a result of denial by our nation's leaders. And had we been smarter, had we realized we were at risk, we might have a different situation right now. And I believe there's a good deal of denial still going on among those pastors who just must open their church doors. And I think that it takes a good deal of faith not to open your church door right now and to trust that God is with you, even though the budget's hurting a little bit, that God is with you, even if the doors are shuttered, that God's just as present on Zoom or or Facebook streaming as God was when you meet in the sanctuary. Even if you can't see it, God's there. Uh, I love that. Yeah, it's 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 been interesting to watch uh, based on the fact that each state kind of has their own process for dealing with this, uh, just how certain churches have handled this, this crisis. Uh, I know my dad's dealing with that on, on his end, you know, he's getting uh, some, some pressure, I would say to, to reopen. And it's, it's like, at what cost though, you know? At what cost we're on new levels. And uh, that's for a whole other conversation. Maybe, maybe a month or two, we'll have an idea of how to open a church again. Yeah. In a way that's safe. Because I've been pondering this with our, our uh, church uh, leadership uh, about, well, you know, if we're supposed to keep a six-foot distance, how many can we have in the sanctuary? And how do we seat people? And do we, what do we do about the collection plate? And do we sing hymns in church because of the, do we require people to wear masks in church? I mean, the, 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 we, have, we have been compelled to think about things that in our privilege, we couldn't have imagined happening. And, uh, and it's good for us to think about this. And we've also been compelled to recognize that the reality of the church is not bound to the building. As much as I love our 200 and plus year old building, a white, uh, white, uh, pilgrim type of, uh, structure about a half a mile from the ocean, much as I love that, the real life of the church is in the sanctuary and outside the sanctuary. And the real life of the church is out in the world as well as in our familiar places. And we will discover with, with Jacob, who upon awakening from a dream says, God was in this place and I did not know it. Mm. One, one of the things that I, I really particularly enjoyed in the book is, is you talk about the importance of a regular routine, um, or a regular schedule in times of crisis and how that relates to uh, regularity in our spiritual lives. Talk about that a little bit. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I think in, in a good life and this and a good relationship and a good life and probably just the, 
the nature of the universe itself uh, requires a, a sort of a, a, a good balance between order and novelty. And uh, uh, the orderliness of the universe and also the novelty, we need things to change, we need things to stay the same. Uh, one of the things that I think psychologists have told us, and spiritual guides as well, is that we need some sort of structures that are healthy, structures of the spirit, structures of relationships. Uh, even though these days I don't have to wear pants these days, except when <laughs> I go down to the beach, uh, uh, you know, I, you know, I put on my sweatshirt and pants. Uh, I don't uh, dress up very much these days, although whenever we do church services and we do them out of our home, uh, you know, I put on my robe and my store and, and wear, you know, wear a, uh, a sweater and slacks under it just for the occasion. But there's something to be said for a certain routine. It's a little bit like the monastic hours. You know, the monasteries, uh, you know, invited people to pray five to seven times a day and to, to reach out to God in prayer about every three to four hours a day. And I think something similar to that is helpful now. Uh, Maybe, you know, you find out the spiritual practices that work for you, but, you know, taking time for prayer throughout the day. Uh, Dorothy Day, the great social activist, uh, was spent a good deal of her time in being arrested and protesting. And, uh, you know, finally in her 70s, she had health issues and she was no longer able to speak or protest. And so she's mostly homebound, and she says, well, now my calling is to pray. We can always pray. We can always reach out. We can always take time for silence. I think those structures keep us moving forward. Uh, One of the things people have to remember, to me at least, I'm trying to remember it, is that this is not lost time. This is not lost time. This is not... Uh, time has not stood still. We're not going to get this time back. Uh, you know, whether we're sheltering in place for two months or four months, whether the church is shuttered for two months or four months, we're not going to get the time back. What we are going to do is live this time. This is the time of our lives right now. It's the only time we have. And we need to spend this time of pandemic with as much um Purpose, meaning, commitment, concern for justice as we would as if we could get out on the streets. This doesn't mean that we won't experience some depression. This won't, doesn't mean that we should say praise the Lord anyway. This doesn't mean that we should deny our feelings of loneliness or depression or, and here I'm talking about non-clinical depression. I'm speaking about the depression that comes from, you know, losing familiar things. It's, uh, we shouldn't deny our grief. Uh, we shouldn't deny the grief that, uh, children of a certain age are feeling. Uh, you know, what the, the kids who, we're expecting to go to camp. We're expecting to go to school. We're expecting to be playing sports. We're expecting to have sleepovers. We're expecting to have high school and college graduations. We can't tell them not to grieve, and we should feel their grief keenly ourselves, but also remember that in this time of our lives, we still have a calling. I think it's uh, Nietzsche and this is quoted in Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meanings, has this poignant phrase, we must be worthy of our suffering. 
And we are suffering, but we need not, we shouldn't uh, uh, let that diminish our moral commitments. Or as I've said in uh, some of my more recent writing, the moral, pa- the, uh, the pandemic does not let us off the hook from being part of the moral and spiritual arc of history. Uh, we can still be involved in changing the world, uh, even though we're sitting in our homes. So the, in June 20th, I believe it's June 20th, was going to be the day that we and Barbara and others were going to have the Poor People's Campaign in Washington, D.C. Mm. That's been called off, but it's going to be done virtually. And and there was poverty before uh, the pandemic. There's poverty now that there is a pandemic. There'll be poverty afterwards. And so the pandemic doesn't let us off the hook from being moral people. Yeah, that's that's so good. I think uh, the, the question I would love to end on, I think that just makes the most sense to me is, is uh, and, and this is the, the theme, the message that I got from this book is just this uh, the theme of hope and, and, and finding the, the, uh, the good in the situation despite our circumstances. And so I love this quote that you have in the book where you say, while we cannot conjure up joy, we can practice joyfulness even when we aren't yet joyful. Uh, talk about the role of Thanksgiving um, and how that can kind of lead us through something like a pandemic. This is key to me. Uh, I'm a, uh, you know, one of these uh, utility players, as they say in baseball. Uh, I play a lot of positions in life. Uh, I'm, I'm one of these rare people on a seminary faculty that will pretty much, if you ask me to teach anything, I'll try to do it. And uh, so I've, I've been a, written a few books on, on books of the Bible over the years. Even though my home base is spiritual formation and theology, I've kind of gone out of those silos. And Philippians is one of my favorite books. And, and Philippians can seem like kind of a Pollyanna book at first glance. Uh, uh, Paul really likes the people at Philippi. They're not the Galatians, so where he really reads the Galatians, the riot act. But the Philippians are people he really likes. And, and he talks about his joy throughout the book. And it can sound like one of those praise the Lord anyway books until you realize that Paul's in prison. Paul's been sequestered. He can't go out on his own anymore. And Paul loved to travel. Paul loved to journey. He loved a pilgrimage. He loved a preaching tour. He writes, rejoice in God always. Then I say rejoice. Let your, th- let your gentleness be known to everyone. Pray about your needs with thanksgiving. And I think what Paul is saying here is that that hope comes when we realize that we had a past, we have a present, we have a future. That even though the future is not guaranteed, we have a future because God is with us. And God will continue to give us good ideas, continue to give us energy and power and possibility. And out of the gratitude of life, we discover that life can be beautiful, even in a pandemic, and even more important than that, because of gratitude, we realize that we could be God's companions to do something to heal the earth. 
Ah, uh, I love that. I love that. Thank, well, thank you so much for, for coming on. Um, I can't recommend the book enough, uh, so much so that uh, that is the book that is going out actually this month to our, our book club members. We have a little book club um, through the podcast, and so uh, I'm, I'm sending that one out to our folks who uh, are a part of that. Um, again, Faith in a Time of a Pandemic, um, it, it's a tremendous book. And, and again, I, I just thank you for writing it. it. It definitely gave me hope and gave me some good spiritual practices to, to help uh, make my way through this uncertain time. So thank you so much for coming on. Well, God bless you. It's been great being with you. Dark cloud.
you know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.